Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for uh, this time that we have with each other, Lord, to slow down our week, to focus on you, to study your word, to worship you. Father, we thank you for um, the relationship that we have with the handful of missionaries that we are partnered with. Uh, Today, our focus is the guest family there in Romania. And Father, we do lift them up to you. I thank you for Chris and and Mihi and their kids and their their friendship that I've had with them and that we have had with them over the years. Uh, We thank you, God, for how you have uh, been working through them and their team there in Romania uh, to to help provide uh, aid and love and uh, practical, tangible help uh, to those that are fleeing Ukraine from the war. We do pray, Father, that as they they have really been in this for a number of months at this point, uh, Lord, that you would help them to to find rest uh, in a and so that they can continue to move forward in a sustainable way as uh, the refugees just continue to trickle in. Uh, I thank you for the opportunity that a handful of us had to go over there earlier this year to um, to, to encourage them to see uh, firsthand what's happening. And so they are indeed doing a good thing, and so we thank you for them. And Father, as we uh, turn our attention to this passage uh, today, Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, help us to understand what's being said here, Father, that you would help us to see how it applies to our life, and that ultimately, Lord, through this time of studying your word, uh, you would help us, Father, to, to draw closer to you, that we would be better equipped uh, to live this life in Christ. Uh, we are so grateful, Lord, uh, for your spirit who convicts us, who enables us, who leads us and guides us, and we ask that you would uh, do that for us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven, have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, Because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the if anyone loves the world, The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And Father, we do thank you uh, for this passage. Uh, So much of 1 John is is beautiful and uh, there are these verses, these snapshot verses throughout this letter that are so impactful. And then as we go through line by line, there's a, there's a lot that really forces us to, uh, to mull over, to contemplate, to wonder uh, what's being said. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, in this passage. And it's in Christ's good name, I pray. All right, so as we've, uh, John kind of creeped into this section last week, and we're kind of coming back to sort of narrow in on it, First uh, John is, it can be difficult. And, and uh, last week, John kind of got up here and he's like, man, Gunnar keeps giving me all these hard passages that like rattle you to your, your core. And as we go through First John, there's like these tests, sort of to, to test where you are with God. Uh, we see that there's sort of the doctrinal test or the truth test to see if you're walking in truth. There's the obedience test to see if your, your life is in alignment with the things that God has called us to. And then there's the love test. How are we doing with one another? And as I look at these tests and I look at 1 John, what I, what I see happening is there's one element where John wants to sort of rattle our cage and cause us to sort of question ourselves and to evaluate where we are with God and our relationship with with him. And on the other hand, he's writing to us to give us assurance. 
And I think he's doing this because from a, from a salvation issue or a spiritual issue, sort of as we relate to Christ, um, a very dangerous thing is to assure somebody of their salvation who isn't saved. And I think there's so, like, I think it, when I look at American Christianity, um, I, I think a lot of American Christianity is like, well, I'm not Muslim and I'm not this, and so I'm Christian. And so we kind of take on the name Christian, but we're not actually before God saved. And, and so there's re- really, there's no more dangerous thing that you can do to somebody than to assure them of their salvation when in fact they're not actually saved. And we know from this letter that John is actually writing to, to believers and he wants to, to bring them assurance that if you're in Christ, that, that, that you're, you can be confident in him. And what I see in the New Testament, uh, I, I, I fully believe in the assurance of salvation and that in Christ we know we're saved. But the assurance is within Christ. And so if you deviate from Christ or you're walking in the flesh, God's not going to give you assurance in your flesh. And he's not going to give you assurance trying to do things your own way. And so as we sort of go through this, I feel like John is on one hand, pushing us into sort of the insecurity, like where you recognize, like, I'm like a dreadful sinner, like the desires of my heart and the things that I, I, I want, like the things that I want to do, I don't do, like Paul says. And the things that I, I like, I don't want to do, those are the ones I'm doing. So I'm like a total failure. And so we could sort of be over there, but John says, no, 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 he's faithful. Confess your sins. He'll cleanse you, make you righteous, that, that in Christ, He wants us in this position to where we're sort of being shaken to really cling to Jesus. And if we're over here saying, well, I'm righteous, I'm doing all of this stuff, and I'm really great, and there's there's really, I'm I'm really a really solid Christian. And like, you know, when I look at other people like Daniel, I think, oh, I'm really, you know, like, he's in my line of sight, and, and, uh, and uh, it's like, well, I, I'm feeling pretty good. And he's like, oh, there's no, there's no safety. There's no security in your own self. And so what he wants to do is to break you down and show you what you need is you need Jesus. And so as he's kind of going through in this, this first section up to this point, there's these three tests sort of get put out there. And what we saw in John, John seeing him up here last week, sort of like insecure about his own self and his own relationship in Christ, just kind of being really vulnerable and transparent with us. It helped kind of me kind of go, ah, I see what's happening. Like, because John's getting forced to Christ in the setting of this passage. And that's where we all should be. And then all of a sudden, depending on the kind of, I don't say the translation, but like the layout of your Bible, um, you might come to this next section and it's like poetry. Like I think the NIV, or if it's not like a, my, my Bible kind of goes like one verse, one verse, one verse, one verse. So it gets really awkward to read and I miss some stuff somehow. But if you go to one that reads like more like a book, all of a sudden you'll come to this verses 12 through 14 and it'll look like a poem. And if you're like, like poetry is just like, I want to be really careful up here, but I like, I like, I'm like having an argument with myself. I just don't like poetry. It's meaningless to me. It's like, I can see Melanie. Melanie's like, I'm reading this great book and Anna's like a big reader and they like read these books and it's like, I can't even like pull it out of my brain because they start talking about like, it's poetry. And I'm like, why would you do that to yourself? And so it's like, so I'm like, and John starts going, I hate poems too. Like He's like, I don't, this whole poetry stuff. And so God's like forced me this first section into, po- it's, po- it's odd, it's poetry. Like all of a sudden, John breaks into this poem. And I think he recognizes that his readers, he sort of pushed them in a corner and he wants to sort of come back and, and reset. And if you go to commentators looking at this poetry, people understand this section in a number of different ways. They could take it very literally. Like, there's three different categories. There's little children, there's fathers, and then there's young men. And they'll say, he's writing very literally to these categories of people. Um, I kind of reached the place where I don't think that this is supposed to be taken literally. And, and don't, don't read me wrong. I take the Bible very literally. Like, I take it as, as we have to read it in context. But within the poem... I think he's taking these three categories of individuals and he's sort of uh, piecing together sort of like within the body of Christ categories of spiritual life that you find that 
that uh, when you come to Christ, you're a little child, and then you, you grow, and there's like this excitement, and you're really like launched into the battle of Christianity, and that's when you're a young man, and then you get to sort of like the end season, and that's where the, the father, sort of the, 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 these broad categories. So that's, that's how I'm going to tackle them. And because I don't think that like all the girls can just go to sleep or if you're not like one of these categories, like I really think that amongst us and within the body of Christ and throughout your life, you go through different seasons. And I, and I think that we should all be able to identify with these categories as we read them. Certainly where I am in my spiritual life, I, I identify with a lot of these different categories. Um, it's a poem. It's poetry. Uh, like, uh, so I'm trying to give the cheater notes because I'm assuming that the vast majority of you are like me and like, you'll notice all the poetry type stuff. Like it kind of flows, it kind of patterns, you see stuff. And so I want to just kind of cheat here. Some patterns. Um, first, he's addressing three different categories. He'll go through the first category once each time, and then he'll go through the, the same categories again a second time. And, um, he starts in the first section in the present tense. He says, I am writing category of person for this reason. Then when he comes down to the second time, he writes in past tense. I have written you little children because of this. So we start with present tense and he goes back to past tense. Uh, it's interesting at least. I'll, I'll like say that, but let's move on. So, and I'm going to cover the each category that's cut, like, Little children, I'm going to do both at the same time just so we can kind of keep it straight because I'm not a poetic person and I'm not going to be able to remember what I said the first time by the time I get to the second time. So I'm going to cover them both together. So thank you and you're welcome. And I'm sorry. <laughs> like all of the above. Um, verse 12. I am writing you, present tense, I'm writing to you little children, those early in the faith, young in the faith as I understand it, because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. And then he goes on to say, past tense, I have written to you, you have to kind of skip ahead to like verse 14 or wherever it is. I have written, written past tense to you children because you know the Father. So first, he goes to like sort of the, the big picture life transformation. Before you know Christ, you, you reach the, the point where you're so burdened down by your sins, you're feeling convicted, you recognize at some point, that there's a holy God, that you're a sinner, and that there's no way that you can stand in his presence, and you don't know how you're going to get out of this conundrum that you're in. And then, it, and then suddenly someone, or a book, or something, the Bible, something shares the glorious gospel to you, that Jesus has died for your sins. And to receive this gift, you believe. That's the transaction. And you believe and you receive the gift of forgiveness of your sins, and you stand before God transformed. It's beautiful. And that moment, like I think back to early in my Christian life when I was there during that season, and it was like I get goosebumps just thinking like when I reached the point where I was so burdened with sin, and I was like I had received Christ, but I was still trying to walk according to the flesh, and the things that I was doing in the flesh were no longer like bringing any sort of satisfaction. And the more I tried to do them to try to sort of receive whatever I felt beforehand, it just made me feel more guilty. But, there, but in hindsight, looking back, what was happening is I had encountered the living God, and I had this relationship and this fellowship with him, and the burden of my sin had been lifted away. And there is Nothing more wonderful or glorious, the awe of being in this stage of your life, of, of that feeling of the burden being lifted off of you. And so he says, I write to you, little children, he writing present tense, because your sins have been forgiven for his namesake, because of what Jesus has done, and because he has freed you from the burden of your sin, because he made the payment for your sin, because you've been liberated, you now have access to the Father, and you know him, this intimacy, this koinonia with the Father. And I think John is in this poem, as he's writing, he's reminding us, don't forget that moment that you first encountered Christ. It might have been yesterday, it might have been 60 years ago. But never forget that intimacy that you encountered with Christ that day that you met him and that you are freed from the burden of your sin. Don't let that feeling, that 
that reality grow old in your life. Then very interestingly, see, in my very like German mind logic, like you start at little kids, where do you go? Or maybe it's OCD. Maybe it's like this. Like, why would he go to the fathers? He skips over the middle band. Like, it seems logical. Go either in height line, go in age order, go oldest to youngest, youngest to oldest, but that's not how he does it. Like, but I'm not going to argue with the Bible. I'm just going to voice my complaints here. <laughs> so verse 13. So now he's skipping ahead to the fathers, those that are like older in the faith, those who have known the father for a long time. He says, I am writing to you present tense fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. Verse 14. I have written to you past tense fathers because you know him who's been from the beginning. Now, it's very fascinating to me at the very end of the game in the poem, uh, those who have been walking with the Lord for the, the longest amount of time, who have maturity in him, the first thing and the second thing are identical. Like the, the end game is this intimacy with the father, that we have a relationship with the father. This is sort of for the little children, there was your sin in your way, and, and he's writing to remind them that their sins have been forgiven in Christ. And he wrote them previously because they have a relationship, and he's reminded them why they have this relationship. It's not because of their works. It's not because of their deeds. It's because of what Jesus did for them. And because he did that for them, they have this relationship with the Father. Well, hopefully at the, at the end of our spiritual lives, when we're in that sort of that later season in our Christian life, because certainly none of these have to do with biological age like or chronological age. is Because you could be a, an infant in the faith at 90 years old. And you could be much more mature in your faith at like 25 years old. I've certainly met a number of people at 25 who had maturity. A lot of these people are people who like were dying of cancer. And God like gives them this maturity because of the reality of their circumstances. So this isn't about your physical age. But for the father's... Both, it's like that you know him, you have this koinonia, you have this, this fellowship. The most important thing that we can encounter in this life is a relationship with our creator. And knowing him, having a relationship with him changes you at the, at, over the course of your life. Like if you know the father, you're going to be changed to be like the father. And this is so much of John's letter that our lives reflect how well do you know him? You know, there's a, I think it's Anna that said that in Spain, there was a saying like, you know, tell me who your friends are and I'll tell you about you. And if you tell me that you're a Christian and that you're walking with the Lord, I can tell you about you. Like I should be able to tell you because the fruit of the spirit is the fruit of the spirit. And if you have known God and you're walking with God, the fruit of the spirit, that will manifest itself in your life. It might look different. And so when he gets to the father's, same thing both times. Now we get to the part that I get excited about, the young men. So we come to the, whatever verse we're in, because I cut it off and I'm doing it out of order. Can somebody help me? Is it verse 12, 13 maybe? That, may, that was clear, okay. We're like at 12, 13, 14, somewhere. <laughs> like the first one. I am writing to you young men, present tense, because you have overcome the evil one. Now that's a really bold statement. So, and as I look at this middle section, the young men, those like, we've all encountered this person and maybe you've been this person. Hopefully you've been this person. I certainly like have been this person. You come to faith in Christ, you move, you move along in your relationship. And then it's like, you're ready to pounce. Like you want to like tell people about Jesus. You want to argue doctrine. You're in the word. You're like, you're just like fierce about it. Um, like when I was in Bible college and seminary, like I was so in these moments, and then I meet these, like, my old seminary professors who've been around the block, like, 17 million times, and they're, like, gentle, like, grandfathers, and they're like, yeah, I used to argue these points and get really feisty about it, but the older I get, the more I realize that it's all, that's meaningless, that what you guys are arguing about. You need to care about knowing Jesus. Like, they're, they're point guy, like, like, they're, like, living this, but, but, like, there's something about that young, energetic age that I'm going to go take on the world for Christ, and I'm going to go live. And so he tells some present tense. He says, young men, because you have overcome the evil one, past tense, you've conquered Satan. Like, you've done this. This is great. Then he says, or I'm writing to you present tense that you've achieved this, but he says, I've written to you past tense. Well, how do they get to this point? I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. 
and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. It wasn't so much that they overcame the evil one, it's that they so abided with Christ in his word that, that he is what overcame the evil one. Psalm 1, this beautiful psalm, verses 2 through 3, says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. If you fast forward through the Psalms, you'll get to Psalm 119, right in the middle of the book, and the the verse 9, it says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. So the little Christian comes to faith in Christ. They learn about Jesus. They accept his gift of salvation. They they understand their sins have been forgiven. They've been liberated. They have a relationship with Christ. They begin to grow as the word of God takes root in their lives. They are able to sort of combat uh, Satan and live in sort of victory uh, through him. It's, it's this beautiful sort of season. And when I look at this sort of making sense of the next section, so we have this poem, and I get a sort of transition to sort of like the way I think. So I, I imagine John. He writes to little children. He writes to the fathers. He writes to these young men who are like going for it. And he recognizes that these young men, these young believers, there is a real battle raging, not waging. there's There's a real battle raging against them. There's a real Satan who's trying to take them down. And I think of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you want to turn over there with me, you can. You don't have to if you don't want to. But Paul, writing to Timothy at the end of his life, he knows he's going to his execution. He's writing his last will and testament. He's writing his last charges to young Timothy to live out his life from this dungeon. And really, verses like 2, uh, is 2 Timothy chapter 2, so verses 1 through 7 are just like, they get me fired up. But right in the middle there, verse 3, he writes, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may Please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And so Paul says, Timothy, I'm going to be gone, and you need to get your orders together. I remember when I was a SEAL, like we'd go through training, and every, every time there was always this flow of life. And then as we got near to where it was time for us to go overseas, one of the last things that was from our, from the, our senior people that we worked with, you need to get your affairs in order. We need to make sure your will's covered. We need to make sure your next of kin are covered, that, that all of your sort of things, in case you're killed, any of these things that could happen to you, make sure that all of your affairs are over. Get your bills taken care of. All of your loose ends need to be taken up because you cannot be distracted when you're over there. If you're distracted or thinking about something else, you're going to get yourself or somebody else killed. And Paul tells Timothy, get your orders in a fair. You want to please the one who enlisted you as a soldier. And so the New Testament uses this military talk, and he's talking to the young men or those that are young in the faith that are in the thick of the battle, and that's all of us, really. And and he's talking about this, there is the evil one. And there's this sort of this transition to the next section. And it reminds me of September 9th, 1999. It was my 25th birthday, and it was the day that I was tasked with my first combat mission. We were in the Southern Arabian Gulf getting ready to go into Liberty and, and Dubai. We were all looking forward to it. And all of a sudden we hear, hey, uh, will the commanding officer or no, whatever, my OIC of SEAL Team 3, whatever platoon, go up to the skipper. And I'm like, oh, no, one of us did something stupid again. And I'm trying to like go through my brain. I'm like, what did I do? Because I, I was always into the shenanigans. And I was like, oh, did we, did we take it? To, we convinced that the Marines were, we told some young Marines that they were being folded back into the Navy. And because they didn't have access to the outside world, they believed us. And I'm like, oh, like, we went too far this time. And then next thing I know, our skipper comes, I mean, our commanding officer, our, our OIC comes down. I've been out of the game for a while. He comes down. He's like, guys, get all your CQB gear. We got to get on a helicopter. I don't know where we're going, but this is real. So then we get in a, we get in a helicopter. We fly like all day long up to the north. 
then they put us in the, the ship, and then they invite us up to the, the commanding officer's like suite. And I was like, sweet. And they set us down at this table. They had like warm chocolate chip cookies and stuff for us. And we're like, like this is really awesome. And then some guy, like an attorney, came out and started briefing us. And he's like, hey, you know, like, you guys are really good. We're like, yeah, we're, this is pretty sweet. You know, like, can I, can I, you, guys, you have milk to go with these cookies? Like, and we're like, we're like living the high life in the, uh, the skipper's suite. And, and then all of a sudden, everything sort of changed. They're like, listen, there's been guys coming out of this location. And the normal Navy boarding crews can't handle it. They're electrifying their rails. They're starting to shoot law rockets sort of indirectly. Like, they're not trying to provoke a war, but we can no longer send guys, and we need you guys to do this. And then all of a sudden, like, our adrenaline started going, like, oh, this is like, they're not just whining and dining us. They're, like, they're fattening us up to go out to the slaughter. And it's like, then all of a sudden, we all kind of put down our cookies, and we're like, what's, what's happening? And then they started saying, this is what's been happening over the last three weeks. It's been escalating. They're scaling the lines. They don't want to provoke us, but, but our guys are no longer able to handle it. We need you to do this. And basically, we just got to wait until they come out. And we're like, okay. So like, hey, we'll find a plot, place for you guys to hang out. We're hanging out. And then later that night, it was, um, you know, it was like we got, we got called up. And I remember it was like 25th birthday. And I'm like locking my magazine into my MP5 going, Gunnar, how did you get yourself into this situation? Um, because this was real. This wasn't training. And so, so John goes through this whole poem. He's talking about the guys, and he, in his mind, recognizes, like, don't, don't get arrogant because I say you've overtaken the evil one. Don't claim victory and that you're never going to stumble. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter, 12, verse, chapter 10, verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands to take heed that he does not fall. And he goes on and he talks about temptation and our propensity to stumble into it. And so as John is writing this, suddenly he gets his war face on and he wants to talk to the church because the devil plays the same game. He has this three-pronged approach to, to, to trip us up over and over and over again. And so he writes this poem. He ends with the little men, the, the little men, the young, the, the young men. And I think that this is why he did it out of order. I think this is why he went from young children to fathers to young men so he can transition into this section so that we could learn how to defend ourselves against Satan. And in verse 15, he writes, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so right away, we have to sort of square away some things because when we read, don't love the world, didn't we read in John three sixteen for God so loved the world? Didn't in 1 John 2, 2, didn't we just read like just a little bit ago about that Christ died for the sins of the whole world? And so now what's he saying here? Do not love the world. Doesn't God love the world? This word world can be used in sort of a couple different ways. And so we have to look at the context to figure out what he's talking about. <clears throat> Previously, these two points that I brought up to you, he's speaking about humanity, people. Now, in this section, when he says, do not love the world, what he is speaking about is the world's philosophy, uh, the priorities of the fallen realm. So there is a philosophy in this world that is in contrast to the philosophy and priority of God and his kingdom and for his children. And these things are so tempting. They, they, they pry on us as is prey on us as humans. They, they know like the way that God created us and the things that we long for. And if we fulfill these longings in ways that are pleasing to God, they're the most wonderful things. But if we use them in ways that are not as God created, we are in so much trouble. It, it's a big lie. And we find our place, we'll find ourselves in a real dungeon of hopelessness, thinking that we're chasing after happiness and it just leads to unhappiness and misery. Amen? Like, I, I, I'm assuming that a lot of us have been in the world and, and what the world offers cannot deliver. And you end up worse than where you started. And so we need to understand that there is a war raging within us. If you are a Christian, that means that you have the Spirit of God within you and you have your flesh. And there are roommates, roommates that hate each other. 
And, and the one is going to lead you one way, and the, one's, the other one's going to lead you the other way. And, and, you know, I've been hearing this over and over again. It's like the dog that you feed inside of you, that's the one that's going to win. Like, so we need to, from a biblical perspective, submit to the one and crucify the other. And so verse 16, here we go. For all that is in the world, the lust or desire, your translation might read, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful, boastful pride of life. So we get these three categories. These are the three categories that, from the fall of Adam and Eve, that Satan continues to use on humanity. Over, same game, different day. Over and over and over again. Jesus' uh, temptation, you'll see these three things. And so the first category that we see is the lust or desire of the flesh. It can be translated either way. And so this is like the desire to feel. Like, think about things that make you feel. I heard one guy say, it was Alistair Begg, I'll give credit where credit is due. Um, Years ago, I heard him say, uh, if you want to understand what flesh is, Take off the H at the end and then spell it backwards. And what do you get? Self. So these are things like feelings. Like you want to feel cravings that are within you. So like I think about sex. Sex is one of the most uh, things that is used in this world uh, in ways that God God designed sex. God invented sex. God created sex within the context of of marriage between one man and one woman, and it's a wonderful and beautiful thing, and God created it. The world says it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Let's use it in every which way you can possibly imagine. And it leads to bad places. Drugs, booze, eating, these things that we do to feel a certain way. You might have a bad feeling about yourself, and you want to do something that makes you feel better, so you, you add these things to your life, to create a feeling of pleasure. And so here, the lust of the flesh, this is the temptation that happens this way. And I think an antidote for this is sort of like, uh, in one sense, it's integrity. That as we enter into the Christian life, it's so hard to be vulnerable with one another. But like, and and we're so good at justifying our sins and I think this is where like being in relationships, so much of this about being in relationship, community, having real genuine relationships with one another where you can say, you know what? I'm really struggling in this area. I'm being tempted and I gave an inch. And we like to hide it or compartmentalize it. And that didn't work for the, the, the Titanic, right? They thought, oh, we have all these compartments. There's no way they can sink. And then it's like, oh, they started like cascading. And then what do you know happened? It, it, it sank. And we kind of think, well, I'm doing really good in this area, but I have this one area of compromise. One area of compromise leads to uh, like a ton of compromise and ultimate failure. And so I think there's something like we as Christians need to learn to be open, honest, and transparent with each other, vulnerable. And it's, it's not to be cool and trendy. It's to have these relationships that you can say, you know what, I'm really struggling in this area. I've been tempted on my phone. I've been tempted by looking at this. I've been tempted in this way. And the person's like, I love you. I pray, I'll pray for you. I'll, like, I'll hold you accountable. And so we guard against these things. The second category is the desire or the lust of the eyes. So if the first one is the desire to feel, the second one is the desire to have. Like, possessions, to see something, to covet something that's not yours, and then to go out of your way to try to attain this. Uh, we all know this. Like, this is, the, this is what marketing is all about. You, everywhere you go, you mention something. There's a side that I like about this. I'm not going to lie. I know that I'm in Valley Center, and there's a bunch of, you know, there's a whole lot of people, but I love it that I can say, you know, I need to buy a, a dress for Anna as a gift. Next thing I go to my computer, it's like there's a whole bunch of dresses available. I'm like, hey, look at that. Like they're all like right there, you know, like, like our world is right now is all about taking data on you. And then they're going to start pitching all of these things. Like you got to have this and then you got to have that. So then it's like this desire to have something that you don't have. 
And I do think that the antidote to this is like being generous, being the giving. This is like the, for me in my Christian life early on, when God started to like convict me and teach, well, not even convict me, teach me about like tithing and giving. That when I get paid, I give a portion to the church. And through that, it kind of like helps prioritize things. When I, when I go out to other places and I see like stuff and it's like, oh, I'd really like that. Um, the whole like being generous and like giving thanks really puts things into perspective to help combat this. Like, well, I don't have this. And like wherever you, whatever your lot is in life, I don't think that we ever reach the place where we like, like in the flesh go, oh, I'm just content. I think, oh man, if I was like Tatis Jr. making however many bazillion dollars he'd have then, I would never long over every, anything. Like, no, he's just got other, like he's craving for other things where he recognize. like, I don't want to talk about Tatis. I just like, he's just a guy that makes a gazillion dollars. And like the only way that we reach this place is by us turning to gratitude and generosity. Thank you, God, for blessing me with the things that I have. It's why in our family we play the thankful game. Because as you begin to recognize the things in your life that you have to give thanks for, it changes your whole perspective. The third category for time, like the boastful pride of life. This is the desire to be. So first category, the desire to fill. The second category, the desire to have. The, the third category is the desire to be. I think that we as humans struggle with this. I see this in a lot of my friends and peers, those who are like in the military, those that are in law enforcement, those like whatever your vocation is, like we as humans tend to like, like wrap our identity around like what we do. And the what we do, that's where we find our value. The pride of possessions. Whether you have them or you don't, maybe you don't have them, and then you try to put on this facade that you do this, and that could be through financing everything. It's super, super dangerous. Um, the, the boastful pride of life. The, the antidote to this, I think, is like just really being humble with one another, being honest with one another. As I was studying this week, um, I have the, the pleasure of being on the ladies and lattes email list. I am, not, I am not a lady. I stay like a fly on the wall, and I don't comment. I just sort of watch the emails as they come in. And so this week, Rachel, who's the leader, where's she at? So I can, she where's my victim? Oh, you changed sides. Like, what's up with that? You and Faith. They're trying to get diff- they're trying to get different no- they're trying to get to know different people. So they've sat there for like 10 years and now they're shifting over here and it's like throwing my So this email came out from Rachel. It's like, oh, what's going on with Rachel? So I start reading it, and it was the most beautiful email like I've read in a super long time. Um like I'm studying this and, and I'm like don't I asked her permission. So you don't have to be worried if you like email me that I'm just going to like throw it out there. Like it was like, hey, Rachel, like this email, like in general sense, she runs the ladies and lattes. They meet once a month. And she's like, you know what? I've been like coming up with excuses of why I can't host a ladies and lattes. I have like a really small house. And when I've gone to other ladies' houses, they're nice, they're big. And I've used this as sort of an excuse. And it's wrong of me to try, like, if I am not open with this, that I'm struggling with, like, this uh, boastful pride of life is what she's acknowledging. Like, I feel like, I, I feel like my house is really small. And if I host the ladies and lattes, then at my house, it's really small. Then that means that I'm really small. And so I don't want to do that. And, but I, this whole thing, and, and she did way better than I'm, like, bush, bushwalking right here. Like, She's like, it sets a bad precedent. Like, we need to be open and honest. And I'm telling you that this is really hard for me to say that I want to host because it's really uncomfortable for me for all of these reasons that I'm insecure about. But I think that God wants me to host the ladies and lattes this coming month at my house, and we'll do it outside because my house is too small. And it was like, I just wrote her back. I'm like, Rachel, this is like the most beautiful thing. And then when I asked for permission, she's like, well, I want to be authentic, but it's not easy. Like, she's like, nodding her head, and she's like, 
Like, I don't care what size your house is, there's always somebody with a bigger house than yours, right? Like, like there, there always is somebody with something bigger and better than whatever you have. And, it's a, and this isn't condemning. If you have a really big and great house, that's not like a bad thing. Like, I mean, like we within the body of Christ, we rejoice with those words. Like, hey, we're thankful. And that you, like, the reason she knows about these ladies' houses that are like that she and her mind has condemned as being big and beautiful, it's because they've invited her in. And so we like thank God that, that people are willing to let people into their homes and hosts and be hospitable. It's what the Bible has commanded us to do. And I do think that there's something about just being humble and honest, like just get over it, like have people over and then you're liberated and you're in Christ in this. It's, it's beautiful. He goes on to say with these three things. So we have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful, boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. This way of thinking is not from the Spirit of God. This way of thinking is from the world, the Father of lies telling us that if we live according to this, we'll find joy and happiness and peace, which is impossible. We only find that through Christ. The world is passing away, and also it's lust, or you could translate that, desires. The one who does the will of God lives forever, not in this life, but into eternity. Just to make sure we sort of, like, we're not Christian scientists here. This is not what we're saying. This word lust, this word desire, It's all through the New Testament. It's used almost exclusively in the negative sense, like we've read about today. Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, the word is used in another negative way that kind of summarizes. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire or the lust of the flesh. So Paul writes there, If you want to crucify your flesh, if you want to kill these desires of the world, what you do is you get in step with the Spirit. This is a military term for sort of marching, that you literally get in step. As the Spirit of God is walking and His feet are going back and forth, we're supposed to get in alignment with His feet, metaphorically here, like but I say walk by the Spirit, that is aligning ourselves with the Spirit of God. And you will not carry out the lusts of the flesh or the desires of the flesh. Paul would use the same word in a positive way. One of the very few, I think there were two times that were used in a positive sense. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul finds himself under arrest again. He's writing to this church that is very concerned about his well-being. This church loves him. They've just, because of uh, the lack of technology, they've heard reports that The pastor that went there to send a message to him almost died, and Paul's in prison, and he's concerned about them. And the letter of Philippians is this letter back to them, sort of expressing to them his gratitude. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul writes, But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire, or you could translate that word lust, like it wouldn't be translated that way here, but it's the same word as lust. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. And so for these, the the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, um, Paul, his desire, his focus, it was for Christ to be with him, to know him more intimately. And he recognized that as he went through his life, he was getting closer and closer to being with him. And so he recognized, like, guys, I'm in prison. They might take my life, but that's okay because to be with Christ is better than to be separated from him in this life. And this is a maturity and intimacy. And if you have had the, the pleasure to be in an intimate moment when a fellow believer passes from this life to the next life, I tell you there's no more intimate thing. As a pastor, I've had the privilege of being with these individuals as they have breathed their last breath and gone into eternity as Christians. It's a beautiful thing as they enter into the arms of their Savior and you recognize that as you get closer and closer and closer that the things of this world are meaningless. Like God has us here for a purpose and we're to serve our point. That doesn't mean that we're not to enjoy his creation and enjoy the relationships that he's given us. It's not to say that, but our, like, our driving force, the closer you get, the more deeper you go into a relationship with him, the greater 
that longing for him is because you recognize that all this world can offer you as a substitute for what truly is with him. And so we transition to communion. We're going to have whoever's coming forward to do the communion elements. Bud's constructed a team. He's going to, they're going to pass out the elements. So there we are. The mystery men have appeared. The girls can do it too. He, he asked, he's like, is it okay if a woman comes? I'm like, of course. They're just passing out stuff. So I don't, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. It's been years. So they're going to pass out the elements. And when you, when you get the cracker, which is gluten-free, uh, they're all gluten-free, just as a little notice. And the juice, just hold on to it. Um, so they're going to pass out the elements. As they go out and you're receiving them, this is a time for us to, like, to, to ponder areas in our life that we're either missing the mark or that we're like struggling with. Um, so often we come into this setting and we think this is the time for us to like, to put up this sort of fake front that like, I'm a good, perfect Christian, whatever that means. Like, I don't even know like that, 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 that what you, what, what I just described doesn't exist. There is no such thing as a perfect Christian. There's a perfect savior and that's Jesus. We're always going to miss the mark. We're always going to fall short and so this is our time for us to like to, to kind of to talk to God, to confess areas of sin that you're struggling with, areas that you're following short of, areas that you need help from him to like move forward. Um, maybe that means like at the end of the service, I, I know that there's a team of people that always have their little signs on, can I pray for you? Like they really want to pray for you. They really desire to pray. These are people who like love praying. And it, you don't even have to like walk forward, although they're down here forward, but you can, they, we got the little signs so you can track them down by the donuts or by the shade structure, get them out of the shade cloth. Like you can say, I'm struggling in this area. Can you pray for me? Get involved in a Bible study, get involved with life and say, these are areas that I'm struggling with. This is what God wants from us is open, openness, transparency, because as we do that, we're forced to the savior. So we'll just take a moment of silence and wait for the elements to go out. We'll close. So in the beginning, I shared that one of the, like, the most dangerous things that we can do is to, to provide security of salvation for somebody that isn't saved. As we go through the letter of John, through his test, he's going to push us in areas where we stand before God, and if we're honest and we can see ourselves for who we are, we come to that place and we recognize, like, I'm not a good person. Like, I have these desires within me. My inclinations are, are not to do the right thing. Like, sin rages within me. Like, as a believer, and I'm really, like, it, like, kind of brings us to that point of insecurity, because like we're really good sinners. But what it should do, we should be convicted and the conviction should point us to Christ. And this is what the Lord's Supper is about. Like we remember his broken body, we remember his blood, this new covenant that we have. Our security is found in him alone. We have a great savior that can deliver us from our own sins from the temptations of the world, he's faithful to cleanse us, to make us new. And communion reminds us to come back to the basics. Don't get so far off track. When I think of the poem, we're reminded in communion that our sins have been forgiven. We're reminded that because of the cross, we know him. We're reminded that through the cross, the evil one has been overcome. 
And so our hope and security is in Jesus alone. Let us pray. Father, I do thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. I thank you, Lord, for this poem. I'm not a poetry guy, but in, in just forcing myself to, to ponder it and to think about it instead of just sort of glossing over it. Lord, I see that you want to remind us all of the, the seasons of our, our spiritual journey to remember that newness of salvation, that newness of relief, of recognizing that our sins have been paid in full, that Jesus died on the cross once and for all. It was sufficient. My sins, past, present, and future, that he has paid for them all. I thank you that through that penalty, through that sacrifice, that through faith in Christ, we can enter into this relationship with you, that we can have koinonia, fellowship, intimacy. We also recognize, Lord, that this isn't just a, a game for us to, to, to sit on the sidelines, that you have called us into service, that you have enlisted us as soldiers, that is the image that the Bible uses, that we have been called to serve you, to share the gospel, to love on people, uh, to be a light to this lost world. For a day is coming when you return. And we long for that day. And so, Father, I pray that as we take communion today, you would help us to align our lives with you. Help us to get in step with Spirit and the Spirit. Help us... Um, to grow that desire of our heart for you. That the things of the world, while tempting, that we would understand that they can't deliver and that you would give us the strength and tools to fight against the temptations that come our way. Help us to fuel the fire of our love and passion for you. And again, Lord, we thank you for what Jesus did on our behalf on the cross. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.